praise God, we are going through First uh, Timothy. We are in chapter 4 right now. And I've been working on a little series within First Timothy on basically, you know, uh, going to God's gym. And because he uses a lot of these analogies, these sports analogies, and being healthy spiritually. And he uses these physical pictures as not really uh, what we're supposed to be mainly focused on. Physical exercise is good for a little, but he says uh, God, exercise and godliness is good for much, not only in this world, but the world to come. Amen. So I'm working on a little series, and I'm not going to, I'll be preaching those messages. I've already started them a little bit, uh, but before we move on to the newer verses, and it'll be a little series on, you know, basically the analogy of a gym, a physical gym, what we're supposed to be doing spiritually. Praise God, y'all showed up to the spiritual gym tonight. It's more important than the physical gym. Uh, but I want to do another message tonight, even though I spent a lot of my uh, day working on the First Timothy series. I wanted to just, I never tire of this issue, and I hope you don't either. And I didn't look at any of my old notes, zilch, period, you know, not one, when I put this together, because I wanted to be fresh. And the message is, you know, who is God? Who is God? And if I asked you to raise your hands and say, I'm sure many of you would express who he is in a very accurate way. But I thought, Lord, help me. You know, there's, if you're going to know anyone, it's essential you know God. Amen. Do you see Jonathan Jake all the way from Mexico? Good to see you, brothers. Pastor Jonathan over there and Jake. It's awesome to see you guys. Uh, but you want to know God. Amen. And we do know him if you're a Christian. Amen. But I want to look at his attributes, who he is. Who is God? And, and it, you know, to come to a Wednesday night Bible study and, and leave with a full tank, hopefully spiritually, where you're like really meditating on who God is. Because it's not about us. You know, that's not Christianity. It's about Him, amen? It's about the Lord. You know, we, our lives are supposed to revolve around Him. And there's a false form of Christianity right now where it's about what God can do for you and you be kind, of, kind of become your own God. I was interviewed, I think it was two days ago. Yeah, it was Monday. And I was interviewed for a Christian television show with the new uh, book, Sparky the Mirror. And I did that interview. And, uh, and I didn't expect a couple of questions that came. And one was, what about these mega churches, these seeker-sensitive churches, you know, where they're just so big, but they're kind of, you know, uh, and the gal that was interviewing me who has her own show, Christian Lady, she was like, I used to go to one of those. And we used to, you know, what the pastor would do is he'd encourage us to watch certain movies, just secular movies. And we'd watch them, and then he would talk about those movies during the message, you know. These, I'm sure, oftentimes very morally compromised movies, right? And she said, that I realized I wasn't, she wasn't growing. I can't remember all the things she was saying. And she was disheartened. She realized that that's, and I, she said, what do you think about this form of Christianity? And I, I quoted 2 Timothy 4, you know, and I didn't expect that question because uh, I th- think the show is more like a conservative news type program. I thought, wow, that's, she's, I'm glad she's mentioning that. But even Paul warns that to Timothy, I said, to preach the word in season and out of season, to reprove and rebuke and exhort, right? With all long suffering and doctrine for the time will come when they won't heed sound doctrine. Remember those verses? But they'll heap them themselves or gather themselves many teachers who will tickle their ears and tell them what they what? Want to hear, you know? And I said, the Bible actually says that would happen, but he tells Timothy, in light of that, he's supposed to preach the word. Amen? Don't you move from the message of preaching the word of God 
Amen. And we need to make sure that we're into the Lord and His Word and into Him because what Christianity is today is kind of like a self-help program for thousands of churches to where it's like, oh, how could God be my co-pilot? It's not people taking up their crosses, denying themselves daily and following Him uh, and, and, and saying, your will be done, Lord, not mine. It's people saying, God, I want, you know, bless this. Bless this mess I made here. And there's not repentance preached often. Uh, Christ can be your Savior, but He's very rarely preached as Lord, and so forth. And a lot of the messages are about me. What can I get out of this for my life? Rather than, how can I live for God better? How can I glorify Him more? How can I make sure it's about Him? Because you're created to glorify God, amen? So, and I know, you know, that sells... But I always say, if you start preaching what's popular, it becomes your church, not God's church. Amen. And, and that's why it says in James 3.1, Let not many of you seek to be teachers, for teachers will incur a stricter judgment. We must make sure we're faithful to God's word. Amen. So that's why you hear me talk, you know, so much about Jesus. Amen? Amen. And we're always focused in the word because it's about him, not about us. And by the way, when you make it about him and you realize it's about him, then your life gets truly blessed. Amen? Amen. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Amen? And all these things will be added unto you. Amen? Amen. So he, he wants to bless you, but you are blessed when you live for him. If the earth decides to go out of its orbit because it wants to live for itself instead of rotating around the sun, it might think it's going for a great blessing, but it's going to destroy itself at the end. Amen? And it won't be blessed. But as we seek the Son of Righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's when we're truly blessed. Amen? Amen? So I want to talk about God's nature and who He is. And I'm going to move kind of quick. And I'll encourage you, that you can turn to any scripture you want. I'm not going to say to turn to a lot of scriptures, because I'm going to go through a lot of scriptures. You can turn wherever you feel led. I'm going to encourage you to turn to some scriptures here and there. Uh, but I want to talk about His attributes. And when you talk about the attributes of God... This could be several messages long. I'm just wanting to do one message on it. I do this every once in a while. Look at the attributes of God. Because it's very humbling. It's, and it's very awesome to get a sense of who He is, you know. My heart breaks for people who don't see the beauty of the Lord's creation. People that grow up in inner cities where it's a concrete jungle. And they can't even see the stars at night. And all they do is get fed pop, what's coming from the popular media. And they're just filled with rage, some often abandoned by their father or mom and dad, living with grandparents. And they're just filled with the rotten music and the filth of Hollywood and, and just the, the street, you know, and all that stuff. And they don't get a glimpse, a very good glimpse of who God is. Well, we get to see his attributes, and you need to make sure you, you walk outside at a starry night. Turn all the lights off, man. And just, you gals that were in the sequoias, man, you got to see the handiwork of the Lord, Amen. Rochelle, Jimmy was so excited for you. He goes, Rochelle's never seen the mountains like she's going to see. Like, never. I mean, we come, you come through Rocky Peak over the mountain right there, right? That's pretty cool, and the hills that surround us. But the sequoias are something altogether different, amen? And I know the Philippines has some very beautiful, you know, islands and trees, but he's like, no, she hasn't seen sequoias, and we don't realize how blessed we are in this state. I mean, most of the world doesn't have sequoias and redwoods, you know? you know, jettisoning a few hundred feet tall for the redwoods and the sequoias, you know, past me and Big Jim over there, you know, wide, you know, there's just a blow of mine. You feel like a little gnat. 
And you just see the transcendence and the power of God. And that just makes you want to worship Him. Amen? Hallelujah. I love it, man. We're in God's creation, you know. Just, you just want to you get cheered up. You just want to praise Him because of His great power and His great goodness. So I want to talk about God's nature, His attributes, His ontological attributes. Those are, when we talk about His ontological attributes, we're talking about the attributes that He doesn't share with us. Things that make Him distinctly God. Then there are his communicable attributes we talk about in theology. These are attributes that he shares with us that make us in his image and make us human because we share some of his attributes like love and peace and joy. Amen? And they're all beautiful as well. But I want to look at both of his, I want to look at his ontological attributes, his transcendent attributes that make him God, but also his attributes as they relate to us uh, as human beings. And when it's very instructive when you start to see who God is. It, just, it makes you want to worship Him more. And I think we need more of a reverence. Amen? We need more of a, a, a genuine fear of God for how awesome He is. So, one thing is, the Bible tells us that God is spirit. Okay? Now, first of all, I'm going to the Scripture for everything I say on this. Okay? Because the Word of God, God breathed, okay, theonoustos is... Every, every part of Scripture is breathed by God. Amen? Amen? And it's interesting because we know this to be true because he says he alone, you know, can tell the end from the beginning. Amen? We have his prophecies that have been fulfilled where he proves over and over again this is from God. Amen? Amen. And I wish I had time to get into that, but then the more time I spend on proving that the Bible is the Word of God, which we've done many, many times, the less time I can explain uh, get into his attributes. So I'm going to take that for granted at that point. But if you want to seek other messages, go right ahead. Uh, but it's interesting because the Bible says that God is spirit. He's not, you know, uh, corporal, physical, uh, as we are. Now, of course, God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. But I'm talking about the Father at this point. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we'll get into for a little bit, are all God. Yet God, before he creates anything, God is spirit. And it's interesting, uh, Jesus said in John 4.24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So God is a non-corporal being, okay? A non-physical being. Now some pe- that doesn't mean some wispy, undefinable essence without any personhood. God's a person, Okay? And although he's everywhere, he also is able to localize his presence in heaven where his son sits at his right hand. And it's not as though because he is spirit that he is without a voice or without spiritual form. Jesus said in John 5.37 to the religious leaders who were rejecting God, he says, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. Isn't that interesting? Remember the first time I really looked at that verse as a young Christian, I thought, that's interesting. Jesus is indicating he has a voice and the Father has a form. Okay? Now we're not talking about a physical form as we understand a physical form because, again, he is spirit. He's non-corporal. Now God becomes a man in the person of Christ. He resurrects and, and they think they see a spirit, the apostles, because they see Jesus, but they're tripping out because he died. What, what is this? And he says, come see, you know, touch me. See that I, I am he. For a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see I have. Amen. You see? 
But God became a man, and in the person of Christ, the second person of the triune or the trinity, uh, and so forth. God is light. 1 John 1.5. He is light. This is the message that he has given to us, that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. God is light. Now we see physical light, so don't think that physical light's God. No, that's a picture of the fact that God is light. Amen? So God is light, and there's no darkness at all, which shows you also that God is pure. Amen? Amen. Darkness, especially in 1 John and the Gospel of John, is a metaphor for evil as well. So God is pure. God is pure. In James 1, around 15 or so, it says in verse, I'd say like 13, you know, uh, it says that God cannot be tempted by evil. Amen? And God does not tempt anyone. Amen. So he has no darkness in him. And it goes on to say that there is, that, and I love this, there, that there is no variation with him. He doesn't, and, and that he goes on to say that there is no shadow of turning in him in the King James or shifting shadow as the uh, NASB has. That he is, he's just light. He's pure. He's ontologically absolutely pure. God is self-existent. God is self-existent. That means he, he has immortality. He exists on his own. Remember, Abraham, or I'm sorry, uh, Moses said, who do I say sent me? Exodus 3.14, what did the Lord say to him? I am that I am. And most scholars understand that to mean, uh, especially in the Hebrew, that he's a self-existing one. And we know this from various scriptures uh, in, throughout Scripture, in John 5, 26, Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself. He has life in himself. See, everyone here, including myself, we've all been given life. Amen? Amen. We've all been given the ability to exist. But God is self-existing, absolutely independent, doesn't have to create us, doesn't owe us anything. Amen? 1 Timothy 6.16 says, Of God who alone possesses, who alone, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So he alone possesses immortality. He doesn't die. Everyone here, including myself, all of us, have to be given, right, eternal life and sustained by God so we don't die. But he just is immortal. Amen. Amen. I did a message at a Baptist church a few years back in in New York. And uh, at that message, I contrasted, you know, talked about Jesus Christ, the greatest superhero, you know. And I talked about the superheroes and their powers in Marvel and DC and how these guys are wimps, you know, compared to God. And I did some interviews on the streets, you know, a couple years back. It was like two years, was it last year maybe? Sometime. I think it was the last year or the year before. I think it was maybe the year before. And, uh, and on the interviews on the streets, we would, went to comic shops and stuff and, you know, asked them about what superheroes most impressed them, things like that. And then we put Jesus Christ against the superheroes. You know, guys were admitting, they're going, well, that's no fear. That's God. He's God. Not only that, he's real. <laughs> you know, our whole date, 2023, is based on his what? B.C. and A.D., right? His coming into the world. And virtually every, any, every historian, virtually all historians admit, anyone that's respected in, in historian, even secular guys who hate Jesus, historians virtually 
admit that he did exist. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified uh, and so forth. So, and I love it because, you know, uh, God is one. God is one. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. So he is one, yet the Bible teaches us that he's three in one. That God is three in one. So the word one, by the way, is akkad. E-C-H-A-D is how you would transliterate the Hebrew into the English language, akkad. And that, uh, if you were to write it out in English letters, akkad. And that's often a composite unity. Like, for instance, just earlier in Genesis, when God creates Adam and Eve, he says the two were supposed to become what? One, one flesh. There's two, but there in the word one there is akkad. And the scriptures throughout the scripture reveals that God the Father is God, that God the Son, Jesus, is God over and over again, and the Holy Spirit is God. And they're all involved in creation. When we baptize, we baptize in the, not the names, plural, but in the name singular of that, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's many times throughout the New Testament where the three are put together. In fact, it's interesting. I love uh, the scripture in uh, 1 Peter uh, 1. Verse 1, the end of verse 1 and 2, it says that speaks, it's addressed to those who are the elect. The end of verse 1 there, then verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, shows the role of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in your salvation. Uh, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Isn't that awesome? May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. God is infinite. It doesn't mean that God is infinite. Meaning there's no limit to God. He's unlimited, you know? Think about that. I mean, Psalm 147.5 says this, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. I love Ephesians 3.20. says that God is able to accomplish infinitely, infinitely more than we could ask or think or imagine. Uh, King James, I think, is on him, is able to do exceedingly abundantly above that which we ask or think. Just way beyond us, Right? I love that. God is eternal. God is eternal. In fact, he's from everlasting to everlasting. That blows me away. Now, if you talk about living for everlasting, how long are you going to live? That means you're going to live how long? Well, what does it mean to be from everlasting? That's from forever. In fact, listen to Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting from everlasting to everlasting you are God that's amazing even Jesus when it speaks of him being born prophetically before he comes to earth 400 years plus before he actually became a man we read uh, that in, in, in a Malachi, that his going forth will be from everlasting. And go to Hebrews chapter 1, if you will. Hebrews chapter 1. Because it talks about how the God we serve is eternal. I just love this, okay? And uh, actually, it's the Father talking about the Son. Quoting the Old Testament about the Son. And it's all about Jesus, the Son, being God. And he's contrasting the Son Keep in mind, the contract text of the book of Hebrews, which is very helpful, 
should really, really bless you when you really size, realize the context of the book of Hebrews. It's all about showing you don't want to forsake Jesus because he alone is our high priest and their salvation is found in no one else and that he's higher and he's above everybody else. You don't want to go back to Moses, you know? You don't want to worship angels, you know? The new covenant is superior to the old. So it keeps the book of Hebrews from the outset exalts Jesus above everyone and everything. Stick to Jesus. And then we read in verse 7, it says who, that of God he makes his angels wins. And his ministers a flame of fire. But look at verse 8. But of the Son, of Jesus, he says, Your throne. This is the Father speaking to the Son, guys. This is great to show Jehovah's Witness, by the way. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's eternal, amen? The Father speaking to the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, which, by the way, when you go to the Old Testament, you look at Lord there, it's Yahweh. It's the Father calling the Son Yahweh. You, Yahweh, or you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will what? Remain, because he's eternal. That's the attribute we're on. He's eternal. And they all will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they also will be changed. But you are what? The same. And your years will not what? Come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? I mean, chapter one of Rome. If you want to know whether Jesus is God or not, just go to Hebrews chapter one. We always talk about John 1, but Hebrews 1 is just as gnarly. Amen? Now, this is what's amazing is when you look at the cosmos, you know, Abraham Lincoln said, when I look to the earth, I could see why some, you know, could be an atheist, but he goes, but I look to the heavens because I don't see how anybody could not believe there's a God. But the crazy thing is, is when you look at the heavens, they're passing away, man. We know that. We've talked about Einstein before, and he believed in the steady state theory. Because how do you get rid of God? Well, if you just pretend that the universe has always existed, and nothing never was and always ever is, which is something I wrote when I was in the occult, you know, which was a lie. I was channeling things from demons. You could just say, oh, nothing never was, always ever is. It's always been here. There was no need of God. Yet guess what? Einstein and the scientists of his day, they began to realize because they saw that the universe is expanding that had a beginning, and they had to drop the steady-state theory. It's virtually rejected by almost every scientist now, that the universe has just always been here. So scientists now recognize time, space, and matter all had a beginning. God is the creator, which gets into the attribute of his power, right, which we're not there yet. But by the way, time, you know, space, right, matter, in the beginning, there's time, God created the heavens and the earth, there's space and matter, right? Uh, so we have a creator who's created everything, and he's before everything, and he's eternal. God is righteous. Aren't you glad God's righteous? Amen. Now, we're so grateful that he's righteous. I mean, we're looking around the world right now, it's just going nuts, right? Crime isn't getting punished in many areas. I think it was, was it in, what city was it? I just saw, you know, didn't spend a lot of time there because I was busy, but I was like, saw in the news that, there was like over 100 people that were hitting different shops. Was that, that was today or yesterday? I think it was today. 
Was it yesterday? Where was that? What city? Philadelphia. Oh, you're right. Right. Set in Philly. Yeah. It's just heartbreaking. I mean, 100 people plus just ripping off one, just all mob. And if I would have told you, yeah, you know, lawlessness is going to increase. Jesus said lawlessness will increase. And you know what? You're going to see on the television, man, there's going to be mobs of people that are just hitting all kinds of stores and very little is being done about it. You know? It'd be hard to believe, but that's where we're at right now, man. Things are getting really, really ugly. And praise God, our God's only control, and people are unrighteous. But the Bible says God is righteous. Amen? In fact, Psalm 145, 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. So he's kind, but he's righteous in all his ways. Aren't you glad God's just not a somewhat righteous? But he's righteous in all his ways. That poses a problem for us sinners because we're judged against his righteousness until his mercy comes. Amen. But you don't want to deny his righteousness because you've fallen short of God's glory. Psalm, 1, Psalm 11, verse 7 says, The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Now, in case you think, wait a minute, there's these scriptures that say no one has seen God at any time or can see him. Yet you run across these other scriptures that says the righteous will see his face. Jesus said the pure in heart will see God. You have a lot of scriptures like that too. Is there a contradiction? No. Right now we can't see God in our fallen human state. Amen? But when we're resurrected, even Job, which is perhaps written before Genesis, says, I will behold him when I'm raised from the dead. Amen? And the Lord promised that we'll be able to see him one day. That's in our glorified state. Right now we'd just be incinerated, man. We'd eat a, 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 a tissue paper would stand a better chance before a flamethrower than you or I would in the in the just naked presence of God with all his glory. We just... Because he's so powerful, because he's so amazing, because he's so good. Now, God is... Uh, when we talk about his attributes, we're talking about these, you know, he's holy. Holy, holy, holy art thou God almighty. Amen. That means he's altogether different than us. He's transcendent in his very essence. In fact, listen to Isaiah chapter 55, 8, 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That just, that just blows me away. So in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 6, when the holy cherubim, which are these radical angels, man, they worship leaders in heaven. We know... That, the scriptures indicate they're the most powerful angels. We call them seraphim, and we call them cherubim. And the one thing I learned as I studied scripture, because everybody says there's a seraphim and the cherubim, and I, used to, I heard that, and I just repeated, yeah, there's seraphim, there's cherubim, it sounds good. Looks like, oh, there's seraphim here, and these are called cherubim, there's different angels. Then I realized, no, they're the same angels some years ago, because cherubim is what they're called. Seraphim describes what they look like. It means burning ones. Because when you look at how they have four faces, it's the identical, same kind of angels. But they're the most, the cherubim are the seraphim, the burning ones. They're burning ones. Why are they burning? Why, if you look at them, I mean, they're not, they're not like, ah, oh, torment. They're like just glowing with power. Because they're in the very presence of God. And the cherubim, or seraphim, if you want to call them seraphim, in Isaiah chapter 6, are putting two of their wings before their faces, right? Two of their wings over their feet. And with two wings, they're flying. They have six wings. 
They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? His glory fills the earth. And they're lit up. Why would they be lit up? Because the Bible says that God is light. He dwells in unapproachable light, right? He's a consuming fire. When, he's, when, if, when the wicked are put in his presence, boom, because he can't tolerate evil. But the seraphim, who are holy angels, the most powerful angels, I believe they're the most powerful because if you go to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, they're the ones that start the worship off. They lead the worship in heaven. Satan, who led a third of the angels astray, at least a third of the angels, he's called the anointed cherub in Isaiah chapter 28. So you have these most powerful angels, and very likely there were five of them before Satan fell, because there's four now mentioned. I'm not saying there's only four, but that's, the scriptures tell us about four of them in Revelation 4 and 5. They're so powerful, but even though they're so powerful, man, in God's presence, they're like, lit up, man. God's radical, guys. He's radical. When you worship him, man, you're not worshiping some, you know, God that the pagans worship. You know, the Lord mocks the gods of the world. They have all their statues. There's millions, hundreds of millions of statues that have been made to be, and God says they have feet, but they can't walk. They have eyes, but they can't see. He even make, mocks the people who worship idols and says, you have to carry your gods. That's embarrassing, you know. But we worship the creator of the heavens and the earth, amen? We worship the one true God, amen? amen. Absolutely. And I love this because when I say he's ontological, that means he's altogether, he's different than us. He's the creator. He's the uncreated creator of all things. And we read this, and I love this, in Exodus 15, 11, and 12. Who is like unto thee, O Lord? Who? Among the gods, even the false gods, even the demons that animate those things they worship or seek to. There's no one like him. Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You have stretched out thy right hand, and the earth swallowed them up. Wow. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful, guys. Omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And that's a, a huge aspect of the fact that he's an infinite being. Uh, you know what? That, that means, you know, we talked earlier about how there's no limit to him. So, but I want to say this, and I return to this one a little bit, is omnipotence is, is in some ways related to his uh, being infinite, but omnipotent really usually expresses his power, where you might use infiniteness in regard to his knowledge, his, his wisdom, and also his power, but he's omnipotent. And there's nothing God can't do that's not in accord with his righteous and holy nature. Every, he can do anything he wants, except the only thing, the only limit he has is contradicting his righteous, holy nature. He doesn't do evil. Amen? That's right. Amen, brother. You can't lie. In fact, uh, the scriptures tell us uh, that God can't lie. Hebrews 6.18 says that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. So if someone says, so God can do everything? Yeah, except evil. Because that's contrary to his nature. Except that which is absolutely absurd and contradictory to order and righteousness and goodness. He cannot change. Malachi 3.6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, the sons of Jacob are not consumed. He can't break his promises. 
okay? My covenant I will not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. That's Psalm 89, verse 34. I already mentioned that he can't be tempted or tempt anyone. James chapter 1, verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God because God cannot be tempted and God does not, he himself does not tempt anyone. Aren't you glad about that? Amen. That God is good. You don't have to worry about him trying to hurt you, trying to tempt you. I'm not saying he doesn't hurt people. If you're in rebellion to God and he'll break you a bit to wound you to get you to repent. So you'll share his holiness for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. He, uh, you know what? There's so many, God is sovereign. Oh, by the way, I love 2 Timothy 2, 13. It says, God cannot deny himself. Can't deny his nature. That's why he can't lie. That's why he doesn't break his promises. That's why he's totally faithful, amen? Because he's faithful to his nature, he can't deny himself. God is sovereign. He's sovereign. He has absolute lordship over all of his creations. By the way, he owns everything, right? Therefore, he has authority over all things. Psalm 47, 2 says this, For the Lord Most High is awesome, <laughs> the great king over all the earth. He's a great king over all the earth, guys. Right now they're having the, and praise God, it's got a lot of people here tonight. I'm glad you guys chose this over the presidential debate. Good job, you know. <laughs> because guess what? I, whoever ends up being president, the world's so wicked, man. It's all jacked up. And you, you can also just not that I won't check out some of the debate. I, I taped it. I'll check out. I'll fast forward through some of it. But it's like so nauseating, you know, especially because, you know, the deck's stacked, you know, with the woke folks to a degree, right? And then, uh, but same times we pray, we vote, you know, or we, you know, hopefully, you, you know, pray about it. But, uh, but I'll tell you what, guys, I praise God that he's on the throne, man, Amen. that he rules. Even Nebuchadnezzar, who's a picture of the Antichrist, the Lord humbles him, puts him on his face, eating the dew of the earth, right? Even Babylonian records show that Nebuchadnezzar, in history, he became silent for a long period of time. That's all they say about it. But the scriptures tell us why God humbled him. Then he recognized there's a God in heaven who rules, amen, who sets up kings and brings them down, amen. Even the Antichrist, it's like, oh no, the Antichrist, yeah, he'll be a pretty radical figure, but guess what? God... God sends the world a strong delusion that they may believe the lie because they refuse to love the truth. They refuse to receive the gospel. They refuse to love the truth. Therefore, God brings a judgment on them and says, I'm going to let this guy rule for a while. God's in control ultimately, amen? amen? So you need to keep that in mind when you see the world getting worse, that God's in control. Don't fret. Don't freak. Amen? amen. In fact, I love this. Uh, Psalm 47, 8 says, God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. Psalm 103, verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. And we remind, when COVID became so radical, and people were, you know, a lot of people dying, and a lot of weird information going out, and a lot of people into control, and all those things were going down, you know, we were able to remind ourselves, you know, stick to Jesus, keep your eyes focused on him. God is on the throne, man. Amen. Amen. And I, I love uh, Ephesians 1 11. It says also, uh, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Our Reformed friends want us to believe that means he says he causes all things to happen, even the evil, and he's predetermined, you know, the guy that molests a kid, he makes it happen, and that's not what the Bible teaches. It says that he's in control of all things, though. He, here's his permissive will. He lets certain things happen, but guess what? He's ultimately in control, and the Bible says 
praise God, he's so powerful, Romans 8, 28, that he causes all things to, get, to work together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Amen. Whatever painful thing you've been going through in your life in the last weeks or months, last couple years, if you love the Lord through it, he'll work it for the good in your life. You need to trust him. You need to trust him. Well, what's the good he's going to work it toward? He's going to give me a new house? No, better than that, man. He's going to make you more and more like Jesus. That blows away a new house. Maybe give you a new house too. I don't know. But it says, right after it says, what it says, that he caused all things to work together for the good, for those who love him, and are called according to his purpose. goes on to say, you remember those verses, for whom he, him who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The highest glory that you can give God is by becoming like his son and worshiping him in spirit and truth. Amen. Yeah. Becoming more and more Christ-like. He's all wise. He's all wise. I love Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, how great are your God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible uh, uh, is it for us to understand his decisions and his ways. I mean, he's so beyond us. How many of you look at the stars sometimes, look at the trees, and your brain just hurts? Like, how does God do this? How does God exist without having a beginning? Because we're used to seeing everything begin, right? But he does. I mean, it's just a blow mine. Not one person here, none of us. I would say you can't even make a blade of grass. You can't even make the littlest, simplest bug. And they're not very simple, by the way. I mean, they've got this radical DNA that's like, you know, it would take you 100 years to count just the DNA, the letters that make up just one of the 30-some trillion cells in your bodies. Now count the DNA in every cell. <laughs> you'd be around a long time. God's so radical. Uh, I love uh, Romans 16, 27. To God alone, or God alone, who alone is wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. He's called in Timothy as well, the only wise God. By the way, God is good. Amen? God is good. All the time. Because that's his nature. Amen. And I love that. And I encourage you guys, one of the first things you teach your children about God, and which I taught my children all the time, God is good. Because I realize that's what Satan wants to do to trip people up. He wants you to, get to doubt God's goodness. Remember, he challenged God. God actually challenged him. Have you considered my servant Job? God's the one that started the fight right there with Satan. Kind of a trip, right? Have you considered my servant Job? How he, yeah, he started it, man. He started the smack talk, you know, how he turns, you know, away from evil. He fears me. Amen. He turns away from evil. And it's kind of a trip because he was basically saying, you know, that Job would not curse him to his face, which is what Satan tried to get Job to do and deny God and commit suicide. You know, curse God and die, his wife said. Job, Satan said to Job before that, though, I'm sorry, Satan said to God, I can get him to curse you to your face. So then when his wife's saying, curse God and die, I mean, she's a mouthpiece for the devil at that point. And he doesn't. He refuses to do that, man. He struggled. It's a real struggle. Read the book of Job. It's gnarly. But he held on, man. He continued to love the Lord. He said, I know when the Lord's done with me, I'll come forth as gold. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen. I know that my Redeemer lives, and I will one day see him in the flesh. Amen. 
I wish there was the advocate to me and God, he says, that could mediate between the two of us. Guess what? There was and there is. Lord Jesus Christ, amen? It's such a powerful book, man. Now, it's interesting because Job tried to get, or I should say Satan tried to get Job to doubt God's goodness, amen? To think that he couldn't be forgiven. Tried to put him under that spell. Job in chapter 7 is like, why won't you forgive my sins, God? Ah, He wasn't not forgiving him. Satan will try to do that to you. Okay, Lord, was, he died to forgive you your sins. You just have to come to him in faith and trust what his word says because his word is, is true, amen? And he's faithful. So God is good. Go to, go to Psalm 100, verse 5. I love this verse. It's just a very simple verse, but very beautiful. Psalm 100, verse 5 says simply, for the Lord is what? For the Lord is good, his what? His mercy is everlasting, and his faithfulness is to all generations. And goodness means that he, you know, is faithful to who he is, his righteous and holy and the goodness of his nature. He's good, his holy and righteous standards. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That's a good God, amen? amen. He's good. Why do he give you thousands of taste buds, amen? In fact, I tell you right now, man, he's so good, he puts us in the periphery, doesn't tempt us, doesn't want us to do evil, but he wants to bless us so much, we just can't handle what he gives us. And we want more. Sometimes I think, Lord, maybe if I had less taste buds, man, it'd be a little bit easier. You know? Know what I'm saying? Or what, whatever it is that you struggle with, it's because every, every sin is a, is a misuse of a good thing that God's given us. Sexuality can become impure, right? Emotions are good in their rightful place, but you can... Be angry, but don't sin, right? And so forth. That's why the word desire in the New Testament is sometimes translated lust. The word desire itself in the New Testament, usually it's not bad. It's not a word that is used for just evil. When you typically see lust, a lot of times it means the word desire, but it's a misplaced desire. It's great if a man desires his wife, but if he turns that desire towards somebody else's wife, that's unlawful. That's breaking God's commandments, Amen. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How many know, how many have sought Jesus, man? You've pressed on through prayer. you pressed on in praise and worship, and you've tasted that he is good. Amen? You've taken him at his word and walked in it and seen the blessing of his hand. You've seen his providence at work in your life because you're believing what he says, and you're walking in accordance with what he says. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. I love this one. I love all these, but... (laughs) Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, the Sermon on the Mount. And look what Jesus says here, guys. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor... And hate your enemy. 
But I, says Jesus, and Jesus is God in the flesh, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who what? Persecute you, so that you may be what? Sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Wow. In fact, go to Luke chapter 6, verse 27. A couple books over. Luke chapter 6. Verse 27 says basically the same thing, but uh, it's a different time. Jesus says this again, and I like the way it's put here in chapter 6. But I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Amen? He talks about, you know, some application. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other one also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. And it's just awesome because he talks about what credit do you get if you just are good to people that are in your family. Because even the pagans do that. He's asking us to go the extra mile, and he's asking us to love people that don't love us back. Amen? That's important to keep in mind. I mean, when Jesus was on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them for they know what they do. Were these all people that loved him? No, he's praying for them, guys. He's going through more anguish than anybody ever went through. It's easy to love each other, but he wants us to love our enemies. In fact, look at verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be what? Sons of the Most High, for he what? Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, verse 36, just as your Father is merciful. Somebody ever tells you that God wants most people to go to hell? It's not his heart, man. He loves his enemy. And he wants you to love them. Amen? Paul said, a lot of Israel turned against Paul just like they turned against Jesus, right? And he said, I'm willing to be cut off if that could save Israel. That's the heart of God. Jesus was cut off. Amen? says, the Lord laid the iniquity of us all upon him. Amen? All of us like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah 53, 6. The Lord's laid the iniquity of us all upon him. He's a good God. So you don't have to doubt whether God loves you or not. Amen? I just love that, man. In fact, go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. Matthew 7, 11. You can back up to verse 7, get a little context here. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. How many are asking and seeking and knocking? Amen. We have not because we ask not. You know, your life could be so enriched spiritually if you're crying out to God daily, praying without ceasing. And then sometimes we sit on our hands like, why isn't God working in my life? Man, you need to surrender to him. You need to talk to him. You need to ask. Verse 8. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and him who knocks it will be get opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his sons ask for a loaf, will give him a stone? Sound to his disciples. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, this is heavy, man, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven? Give what is good to those who ask him. What's he saying? 
The love that we have for our children, and I don't care if it's my children or my grandchildren, I try to do everything in my power to be a blessing to them. But he says to me and to you, if you have children, God loves us way more than we love our children and grandchildren. Get your brain around that, man. Get your brain around that. Because that's, that's an immense love, amen? So much so that he died on the cross. And that's not just for, that's for the world he dies, amen? He's omniscient. What does it mean, omniscient? He's what? Omniscient means he's what? All-knowing. He knows everything. He knows everything past. He knows everything present. He knows everything future. I, I, it's, it's just awesome. It says in 1 John 3.20, uh, whatever your heart condemns us, or whatever, your, uh, whatever our heart condemns us for, God is greater than our hearts because he knows all things. Listen to Isaiah chapter 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things, those of long ago? I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Amen. He's all powerful there and he's all knowing there. In fact, it's interesting one of the things I trip out on about God, which is, is, is he has counterfactual knowledge. Counterfactual knowledge. And when you start to understand that God has counterfactual knowledge, then you start to really appreciate how he knows everything. And he doesn't just know everything, because some theologians say, well, he only knows what he predetermines. Those who pre preach open theism, they don't believe that God can know everything. So he only knows certain things. He only knows what he's predetermined to happen. So if he predetermines this to happen, he predetermines that to happen, he knows that. But he doesn't know what decisions people will make and, you know, because no. he hasn't predetermined everything that will happen because no. people have free responses. So he, he only knows things that he's predetermined to happen. And then some things beyond that because he has some good guesses. But he doesn't know all things that are going to happen. Those are called open theists. Okay? I disagree with them. Then there's others who are in the reform camp and say, well, it's true that he only knows what he predetermines to happen, but he predetermines, every, he predetermines everything that happens, and since he causes everything to happen, it predestines everything that happens, therefore he knows all things. But he couldn't know something if he didn't predetermine to happen, they say. That's, that's limiting, just like the open theist, how powerful God really is. Because if you say whether you are an open theist saying he can't know the free choices of people, just what he predetermines. You're limiting God, and you're not actually staying true to Scripture. If you say, yeah, he can't know the free decisions of people, but he knows everything because people really aren't free, and everything people do, he's predetermined them to do it before they even chose to do it. Well, that would make God immoral, because then he's judging people for doing the very things he predetermined that they would do. You know what I'm saying? Then you're making, you're, you're, you're turning God into this... The Bible is very clear that God doesn't make you sin. And he holds you, he holds you responsible for it. Amen? Yeah. In fact, if you suppress the knowledge of the truth, it says you're without excuse before God. Yeah. If he made you do that, that would be the best excuse you could come up with. Well, I had no choice but to do that because you predetermined before I even existed. Well, that would be a great excuse. But that's not our God. So what I'm saying is God has such vast ability to know all things because he by nature is all-knowing that means he always knows everything 
and everything that will take place, that he even knows the choices that people will make. In fact, the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, go there with me, please. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I think this is a really beautiful verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It's after he warns them about, you know, he beats himself down, so after he's preached to others, he himself would not be condemned or cast away in chapter 9, verse 27. Then he talks about the Jews, God, after he blessed them and saved them out of Egypt, many of them God destroyed because they rebelled against him. Then he says in verse 12, let him who thinks he stand, therefore take heed lest he what? Fall. But then he gives this beautiful promise. Look at this, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is what? common to man. And God is what? Faithful. Who will not allow you to be what? Tempted beyond, tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also what? Provide the way of escape also that you, so that you will be what? Able to endure it. By the way, is there free will in there or not? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely, right? Right? You know, all temptation we go through is common to man, but God's faithful who with the temptation will also give you a way of escape because he's faithful so that you may be able to what? Endure. Endure it. In other words, God wants you to take the way of escape. Amen? Yeah. If you don't take the way of escape, can you say, well, it's because you tempted me, God. Can you say that? No. James 1, no. Is it because God didn't provide the way? No. No. Is it because God predetermined you and made you go the wrong way no. and blames you for it? No. Well, yeah, Joe, I see that. I see, yeah, we're free. That's obviously clear there, but... That, how does that teach he knows everything, even the choices that we'll make? There's a lot of passages that teach that. We don't have time to get all into that, but I'm going to give you one to go to. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 23. It's my favorite one that teaches what we call counterfactual knowledge in theology. 1 Samuel chapter 23. And understand the context here in 1 Samuel chapter 23. The context is King David has been, you know, he's to be king, right? But Saul is still king. And Saul is trying, King Saul is trying to kill him. Amen. He's hunting him down like a dog. Trying to, and David says, you hunt me like a dog. And he goes to Kyla because Kyla is a pretty good fortified city. And they're friendly toward David. He's in line to become king. And, and King Saul is going to kill him. But guess what? David doesn't know or wants to kill him. David doesn't understand what's going to go on. But look at chapter 23, verse 10. Very interesting. He wants to know, I think this is powerful, he wants to know if King Saul is going to come to Kyla. And if he does, are the people going to give him me over to them? Are they going to betray me, you know, because they fear the king? Well, we read in verse 10, Then David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Kyla to destroy the city on my account. Will, now check this out, will the men, verse 11, of Keilah, surrender me into his hand? It's a question. Will Saul come down, just as your servant has heard? O Lord of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. He's going to come down. He knows his decision. Now, he's not scratching his head like, well, what if he changes his mind? God knows exactly what he's going to do. And look what he does. Verse 12 says, then David said, will the men of, of, of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. That's what they'll do. Now, David's a wise man. Amen. He knows 
strategies. He knows stratagems. He knows how to combat them. He, he knows King Saul. He actually played the harp before him. He knows, but he doesn't know the decisions. You can't know every decision someone makes, but God does. And he says, this is what King Saul is going to do. And yeah, he'll come to kill you. Yeah, can't, yep, they'll have, yep, that'll happen. Then look at verse 13. Then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Calah and went wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that King David had, that, that uh, David had escaped from Achilah, he what? Gave up the pursuit. He ended up not going there. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you God knows things that will happen. If you do this, he knows what this person will decide. He knows what that person will decide. He knows what these people will decide. He knows that, yep, Saul's going to come. Yep, 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 then they'll hand him over. Yep, that's good. Oh, then he takes off, and it doesn't happen that way. You guys, praise the Lord for his wisdom, man. He knows all things. He knows everything. Amen? Amen. And you should praise him and love him and say, God, you are all wise. So while we play checkers... I don't even want to say he plays chess because that's an insult to God. Insult. So beyond infinite chess or whatever you want to call it, man. God's mind is just amazing. He knows everything. In fact, uh, there's scriptures like in 2 Kings 6, 12, uh, you know, there's a complaint to the king, you know, but Elisha, the prophet who was in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. He sees everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Psalm 139, verse 7. Then David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain uh, that Saul... What in the world? Nope, I didn't put the right scripture. That's what we just read. But Psalm 139 is all about how God knows everything. He knows, and, and if I go here or I go there and make my bed in the sea or whatever, he's there, right? He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And it's so, so beautiful. Second Chronicles 2.6. But who is able to build the temple for him? Since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him. Who then am I to build a temple for him except a place to burn sacrifices before him? In other words, guess what? The heavens and the earth, God is so everywhere. The heavens and the earth, the heaven and the heavens can't what? Contain him. That's how big God is. How big is God? Your kids ask. Well, you say, well, guess what? All of creation can't contain him. And even the heaven and the heavens, he's so much bigger than that. You know? But you know what's a trip about that? And I love this. He's also imminent. Okay? And I don't mean imminent, mean I-M-M-I-N-E-T. Okay? I'm speaking at I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. Imminent M-I-M-M-I-N-E-T means any moment. It can happen any moment. But the imminency we're talking about, or the being imminent, means that God is also present. He's everywhere, but he's also very present for us. In fact, I love Jeremiah 23, 23. It captures both ideas. I am a God who is near. Isn't that cool? I'm a God who is near, says the Lord, and I'm also a God who is far away. I love that verse, man. He's near. He's far away. That's how big he is, man. It's one of my favorite doctrines. Psalm 34, 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. Acts chapter 17, verse 27 and 28. Listen to this. That if they would seek God, if people would seek God, because God distributed people throughout the nations, he created boundaries between the different nations so they wouldn't have a Tower of Babel effect, right? He says he's done this if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is, listen to this, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. I love that. For we are also his children. 
So that's radical, guys. So he's near you, man. You cry out to him, he's right there. I remember when I became a Christian, you know, when I, I didn't like want anything to do with the God of the Bible, but then when I realized he's the true God, and I cried out to him for deliverance when I was under satanic power, man, God cut right through that and delivered me. I'm like, he was there the whole time. What an amazing God, being patient with me. God is glorious, Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The, the heavens proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice has not gone. Psalm 148.13. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and in the heavens. Wow, guys. Now, briefly, because I've only got a few minutes left, how do these attributes relate to us and how does he manifest his attributes to us? Well, he's holy in a way that we can't be holy. He's the uncreated creator of all things. He's above and he's altogether different than us, amen? amen. But he's also holy in the sense that he's ethically holy, morally righteous, amen? amen. So we're creating his image so he expects us and calls us to be holy as he is holy. Good job. Did you get that, Mosquito? Good girl, man. They're a nuisance, man. So uh, God is jealous. says he's a jealous God. And I'm going to hit these quick. Exodus 34, 14. For you shall not worship any other God, the Lord says. For the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Now he starts speaking of these things in relation to who he is in relation to us. Because like a husband, Paul says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Paul's saying he has a godly jealousy because we belong to God. Just as a husband would have a proper jealousy if the wife was wicked, right? So God has a proper jealousy because we belong to him. God is wrathful. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of God, of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, who don't want to admit there's a creator. So also has wrath because that's how his holiness acts toward wickedness. Because he's holy, because he's righteous, because he's good, because he's perfect, because he's true. When people break his moral law and hurt other people and rebel against God, he pours forth his wrath. But thankfully, thank God, he is merciful. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being great in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Romans eleven twenty two. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Aren't you glad God's merciful? He's patient. Exodus 34, 6. Aren't you glad he's patient? Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses, or in front of him, speaking of Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the, uh, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and grace, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Isaiah 48, 9. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. He's so patient that the Bible says, that in 2 Peter 3, 9, that God is patient toward you, not willing that any would perish, but that what? All would come to repentance. And of course, uh, he's gracious. Aren't you glad he's gracious? Psalm 103, verse 8 says this, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. Gracious is God's undeserved favor that we don't deserve. Amen? When he undeserved, when he undeserved, when we deserve wrath, he relents of his wrath and he gives us his love and his kindness and his mercy. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. 
He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And you love, we all love Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace we're saved through faith. Right? Amen? It's not, it's not of works, right? The same wish should boast. It's a free gift of God. Salvation is, right? God is love. I can't leave that out. Psalm 119.64, the earth is filled with your love, Lord. Teach me your decrees. 1 John 4.8, 1 John 4.16, it repeats it. God is what? Love. What does that look like? John 3.16, Jesus said what? For God so loves the, wor- loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God is love, man. And he's not partial. I love that. He's not partial. Romans chapter 2, verse 11 says, God doesn't play favorites. There's no favoritism with God. He doesn't say, you know what? I want to damn that person so God will see, so people see how powerful I am. I know, you know, that person is just as wicked as that person, but I want to show off my power so people will really dig me, man, and see how powerful I am. But I'm going to give that guy salvation, even though I could damn that guy, right, and just save that guy. But it's all a show because I want to show people my power of how powerful I am and my wrath and my love. No, God desires to have mercy over all his works. Amen. He doesn't will that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Amen. He wills that all be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the scriptures say. So he invites everybody. In fact, in Romans chapter 11, verse 32, it says, We've all been shut up into disobedience. Who is that? Who's y'all there? All. That he might show mercy on all. The same all. So we're all disobedient, but he wants to show the mercy to all of us. And finally, You really want to see what God looks like? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. Amen. Praise God. I want to talk all about how God shows himself in Jesus, but I'm looking at the time. And I think we've got a good feeling. Amen. We had a message. Who is God? Have we looked at a lot about who he is? How should we react? I know how we should react. Can we all please stand up? That's the beginning. The Bible says, stand up in awe of your God. Do you know what says that? So let's stand up in awe of our God. It says, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Now that's before, it says that most people that are clueless about what he's going to do in his son for us, amen? And they're still praising him. You and I have far more reason to praise God than the ancients did who did not know and understand who Jesus is yet, amen? What a shame if we don't praise him. And Jesus says, guess what? If the rock, if, if, my, if they don't praise me, the rocks will what? Don't let a rock cry out in your place. Give the Lord thanks. Let's give him praise. He's worthy. Amen. Tell him you love him. We love you, Father God. We praise your holy name. We love you, Father. You are so worthy, Father. We pray in your son's name that we would be filled with praise and that praise toward you be continually on our lips, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Give somebody a big hug. God bless you guys. Have a great evening in Jesus.